An interesting cultural phenomenon in our country is the historic blood feuding between families. Often a conflict which may have started out as a strife between two individuals further escalated into a, a clan-wide feud involving dozens or even hundreds of participants. Without a doubt, the most famous family feud in American history was the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Most people familiar with these surnames may know little about the faded history of these two families and the legends they inspire. The Hatfields were successful timber merchants. The McCoys were not near as prosperous, but did own some land and livestock. Both families lived along the Tug Fork of the Big Sandy River, which snaked along the boundary between Kentucky and West Virginia. The McCoys lived on the Kentucky side, and the Hatfields lived on the West Virginia side. In 1878, Mr. McCoy accused Mr. Hatfield's family of slipping across the Tug Fork and stealing one of his hogs. Hog stealing was a very serious offense. A hog could feed a family for 30 days. So Mr. McCoy took Mr. Hatfield to court. The local justice of peace happened to be a member of the Hatfield clan and didn't find enough evidence to convict. After the trial was over, someone from the McCoy family became so filled with fury that he shot and killed a witness who had sided with the Hatfields. Believe it or not, after the shooting, the feud stopped for years until 1882. One of the McCoys ran for public office. He was verbally attacked and discredited publicly by one of the Hatfields and he ended up losing. Three McCoy boys and a drunken election day brawl stabbed a Hatfield several times before eventually shooting him in the back. Everything escalated after that. Devil Ann's Hatfield, the key character on the West Virginia side, began to execute mountain law. He gathered those three McCoy boys and tied them to a tree, lined up a firing squad and unleashed more than 50 rounds. The fighting didn't end there. Those who supported each family along the border of Kentucky and West Virginia joined the fray. The feud reached its peak during what is called the 1888 New Year's Night Massacre, when several of the Hatfield gang surrounded the McCoys' home and opened fire on, on the sleeping family. Then they set the house on fire in an effort to drive Randolph McCoy, key figure on the Kentucky side, out into the open. He managed to slip out unnoticed and escape the fire, but his family wasn't so lucky. The Hatfields shot two more of his children and beat his wife and left her for dead. The Hatfields and McCoys were often headline news throughout the country. At one point, the governors of Kentucky and West Virginia called up their state militia to stop the fighting and try to resolve the issues. When it was all said and done, the 11-year feud, which lasted from 1880 to 1891, would consume two families and take the lives of dozens of people. And to think, it all started with a stolen pig. Somewhere between the feuding, there was a Romeo and Juliet story between a McCoy girl and a Hatfield boy that also ended tragically. There was also a hanging that I left out. Devil Ann's Hatfield died a revered man, like a patriarch on a hill to his community. Randolph McCoy, after five children murdered, died a broken man. Devil Ann's Hatfield took life by the horns. 
And Randolph McCoy, a former POW in the Civil War, well, life took him by the horns. For generations, the Hatfield and McCoy parents would not allow their children to speak about the family feud. I heard one lady say, growing up, we only spoke about it in whispers. I don't know who ended up winning. Looks like both sides lost a lot. I guess you could say the winner writes the history, and we have the history from the Hatfield perspective. We are about to witness in our text a family feud that could prove far more devastating than the Hatfield-McCoy feud. Instead of taking the lives of dozens of people, this could possibly take the lives of 15 million. It's a feud between Mordecai's family and Haman's family. Many Old Testament scholars believe it's no coincidence that both Haman's family tree and Mordecai's family tree are explicitly given in this book. And I agree. There's a family feud lurking behind all of the events before us. We are introduced first to Mordecai, the key character on his side. Mordecai's genealogy is found in Esther chapter 2 verse 5. He is a Benjamite, a descendant of Saul. He's a He's a Jew. Notice verse 21. In those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now this might sound like Mordecai is sitting at the entrance of the king's palace under a little umbrella and he's valeting cars. But when you understand what the king's gate referred to, that will change your perspective. The gate was guarded by stone lion-like figures which measured 197 feet high and 99 feet wide. Davy says that the gate was actually a large building just inside of the palace complex. It was the administration building where legal, civil, and commercial business was transacted on the king's behalf. So to be inside the king's gate meant you were one of the movers and shakers in the kingdom. You were a big dog. You were in the inner circle. You went to office parties at the king's home. Uh, you got a gift from the king at Christmas time, probably a t-shirt with this, this face on it, or a monogrammed coffee mug. Mordecai has a private office down the hall from the Oval Office. Standing outside the Oval Office is, verse 21, big, thin, and terish, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold. These men were the last line of defense for the king. They were like his secret service detail. Verse 21 tells us they became angry. And if I were these two guys, I would be angry with the king as well. He stole me away from my home when I was a, a growing boy. He castrated me. And he made me a slave in his palace. Ancient historians report that 500 young boys were gathered each year and castrated to serve as eunuchs in the Persian court. It was a brutal act. The story continues, the end of verse 21. And they sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. So there's an assassination plot afoot. But they don't realize that walls have ears. And Mordecai is listening down the hall. He's tiptoeing his way down the hall. He's blending in with the wallpaper like a, like a chameleon. And notice verse 22. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. Mordecai, presumably through back channels, passes word to Esther, who in turn 
warned the king. This would be the lead story on CNN and Fox News. There's a plot for the execution of the most powerful man on earth. Any of you with military background know how serious this is. Trying to kill a commanding officer, let alone the president, the king. This is big. There's a congressional hearing, verse 23. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. Now you may picture an an old western, a high platform, everybody's looking, a bunch of ropes with nooses hanging on them, a man tied behind his back and at his ankles, then the trap door opens and he hangs. Well, that's not exactly how it worked in Persia, especially in the Greek. Literally, they were hung on a tree. And there's a debate historically among the theologians and archaeologists if they were hanged, as we think of it, from a tree, or if they were crucified on a tree. Persians created the form of torture that we refer to as crucifixion about five years before, about 500 years before Jesus was born. Either way, it's a public spectacle so that everyone knows you do not plot against the king. Verse 23 continues, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The Persians kept records of absolutely everything. That's why we know so much about their history. Herodotus tells us that King Xerxes had secretaries record each time one of his officers behaved with distinction in battle. However, here, for some odd reason, the king overlooks Mordecai. And I wonder if Mordecai was disappointed by being passed over. Like, could I at least get a new office? What about a raise? Maybe Saturday's off. At least to thank you for saving your life. But there was nothing. Like the butler in Genesis 40, Mordecai is promptly forgotten. And what could God be doing with this slip of memory? This is very strange because according to history, acts of loyalty were usually rewarded immediately and generously by Persian kings. Loyalty needed to be rewarded as much as disloyalty needed to be punished. So there isn't any logical historical explanation for this oversight. But there is a theological one. You need to tuck away this event for later and then you'll discover it. Let me bring up a question. Why did Mordecai preserve the life of a wicked king? Xerxes is a tyrant. He's a murderer. He kidnaps 500 boys a year. He had around 700 wives and concubines at this time. Why let the evil man live? Why not let the assassination plot continue? Mordecai certainly wasn't a Bonhoeffer who plotted the death of the evil ruler in his day. We've seen this character. Now we're introduced to the main character on the opposing family. Notice verse 1. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials. Who is Haman? Haman the horrible. That's what I call him after spending all week with them in this text. He's the antagonist in the story. He's the villain. He's the Machiavellian cutthroat character. He's cold-blooded. 
Haman is an egomaniac. He loves power. He loves glory. We walk into his promotion ceremony in verse 1. And the king makes this fool prime minister. The author places the promotion of Haman just where the original readers would have expected Mordecai to receive a promotion. The author places these two guys in opposite corners of the ring from the very beginning. We discover from this verse that Haman is an Agagite. Now, an Agagite may not mean much to you, but God doesn't waste words. It is a marker. Agagites were descendants of Amalekites. And this is key. Don't miss this. Mordecai is from Israel's family, and Haman is from the Amalekites' family. The Amalekites were nomadic people in the southern desert region who frequently raided Israel in the beginning of Israel's history. They were the arch enemies of the Jews. There has been blood feuding between these two families for 900 years. And when the Jews exited Egypt on Passover, they were first attacked by the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the unstoppable terrorists until God declared a holy war. In 1 Samuel 15, God told the Jewish king Saul to kill all the Amalekites, all the livestock, and that Jew-hating king Agag. Saul came in with 210,000 soldiers and laid it down. After the battle, God appears to Samuel, his prophet, and tells him to go talk to Saul. The prophet approaches the military commander and he asks, how did it go? Saul responds, nailed it, did it, came in like a wrecking ball. I did what God said. And then in the background you hear, meh. And then a moo. And then an oink oink here and an oink oink there and an oink oink everywhere. And Samuel's like, why do I hear sheep bleeding and cows mooing and pigs oinking? You're supposed to kill everything. And Saul's like, that wasn't a cow. That was, that was my stomach. I'm hungry. I missed breakfast. Samuel didn't fall for that. As it turns out, Saul won the war. But he failed to obey God in carrying out the terms of the holy war. He did not carry out God's orders completely and comprehensively. He kept alive the best of the livestock. And then he also left the king alive. Agag. Samuel the prof, he's heated. He walks away, but as he does, Saul grabs his robe and it rips Samuel turns around, looks Saul in the eye, and he says, As my garment ripped, so the Lord will rip this kingdom from you. You will no longer be king. And to think, this condemnation all came because of a, a pig. A literal one and a figurative one. The king, Agag. Before Samuel hacked Agag to pieces, as the scripture says, before the Lord, Agag sired a child that would keep the family line going. Still existing upon the face of the earth was a relic of the Amalekites. And his name is Haman, the hateful. While the feuds between the two nations often erupted in bloodshed, the feud actually stopped for years. Until 
Verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. 550 years after the death, the death of Agag, Haman, the Agagite, walks past the massive lions into the administrative building and everyone bows down. Everyone. But one man. A Jew. Mordecai. The tribal feud still smolders in his soul. He remembers this feud being whispered as a child. It is my belief that Mordecai should have bowed down. Now you may disagree. Some scholars do. They believe that bowing was a form of worship. So everybody bowing down to Haman, they were worshiping him. But I just don't see that. Xerxes, the control freak that he was, commanded everyone to bow down to Haman. And he certainly wouldn't command people to worship Haman when he was all about the glory himself. So I see this as a reverential bow, a sign of respect. Acknowledge my general. Some Asian cultures still do this. It's not wrong for me to go there and bow. It's cultural, not worship. It's a handshake. It's curtsy. In the military, if you encounter someone of a higher rank, you salute. You, you respect the chain of command. See, bowing, this was not a religious act, but one of court protocol. Notice verse 3. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? In other words, how are you not doing what the government commanded you to do? And why are you giving Haman the stank eye? He's the prime minister. And then let's just back away from the text here for a moment. Up until this point, Mordecai's been a jellyfish. This guy doesn't have a backbone. And then all of a sudden, he's like, I'm going to make my stand here. I am not bowing. This is the line, and I'm not crossing it. Such a weird place to draw a line in the sand, isn't it? Especially considering his previous compromises. You want to stay in a pagan land? Yep. You want a ham sandwich? Yep. E extra bacon. You want to have your daughter in the Bachelor Persia edition? Yes, please. You want to hide the fact that you're a Jew for your entire life? Absolutely. You want to shake that guy's hand over there? No. Never. Why? He's a Hatfield. I don't shake hands with Hatfields. Scripture tells us clearly that when the king's servants asked Mordecai why he wouldn't bow, verse 2 says he told them it was because he was a Jew. I remember Tug Fork. Haman at first did not recognize Mordecai acting differently from the other officials. So the other officials in verse 4, they snitched. And then we arrive at verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. The hostility erupts. He's ready to execute mountain justice. He's been brought up to hate Jews. He views them as less than, less than, less than a pig. And he's mad. He's madder than a wet hen. He's having a dying duck fit. He goes crazier than a fly in a bass drum. He's being publicly opposed, publicly ridiculed, publicly undermined. His father taught him to hate the Jews. 
whose father taught him to hate the Jews, whose father taught him to hate the Jews, and no Jew's going to do this to me. Because of this, Haman's plot is to liquidate not only Mordecai, but all the Jews. Let's end this clan war once and for all. He's, he's so mad, he's gone mad. He gathers up all the hate of all generations into one sweeping blow. Genocide. He wants nothing short of an ethnic cleansing. By the way, I learned this week something super interesting. The Orthodox, the Orthodox Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim, and when they do, they retell the story. And when they say the name Haman, the children all respond by hissing. It sounded kind of fun, so even though we're not all children here, I thought we could all give it a shot at least once. So the next time I say the name, I want you to interrupt it with a hiss. There's a guy named Haman. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. But I just want to try it again. There's a guy named Haman. He's the Hitler of his day and he wants to annihilate the people of God. A genocidal holocaust to eliminate 15 million Jews. For this clan war, he's come up with a final solution. In verse 7, Haman's very super... That's good. You, you don't have to continue that because I'm saying his name a lot more. In verse 7... Uh, Haman's very superstitious and he's believing in astrology and he bade his magicians to cast lots that they might find the lucky day for this great undertaking. So the, the voodoo, voodoo doctors, they're, they're, they cast the lots. These stones were usually made from baked clay shaped like modern dice. They cast them into the lap of false gods. They're throwing dice to find the optimum day to annihilate the Jews. Whatever month and day the dice lands on will be the day. Haman approaches the emotionally adolescent king with his plan. Haman's presentation was a subtle mixture of truth, half-truth, and a lie. In that order. Notice verse 8. Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. Truth. They do not keep the king's laws, half truth, so that it is not the, to the king's profit to tolerate them. Lie. Xerxes is a hands-off, he has a hands-off approach to governing. So he doesn't do his homework on the Jews. He, he doesn't get both sides of the story. There's no investigating the facts. Haman easily persuades a lazy mind. He obviously knows what buttons to push. Remember that the king is still harboring resentment from Vashti's rebellion, two humiliating military defeats by the Greeks, and an attempted assassination. Haman knows the king is in a vulnerable state. All he needs to hear is that there could be possibly an assassination, a takeover. Haman continues... Let the orders be given that they be destroyed. And look, king, I'll pay for it myself. I'll deposit 375 tons of silver into the royal bank to finance the operation. And here we find that one side of the feud, they've got a lot of wealth. 
The king needed the money. He had been depleted by his failed military attacks on Greece. So in verse 10, Xerxes orders to massacre, kill, and eliminate all the Jews. Little girls with pigtails. Little boys pushing trucks in the dirt. Toddlers learning to walk. Chubby-faced kids learning to chew with their mouths closed. Old grandmas who can barely walk. And grandpas who can't hear people coming up behind them. Kill them all. Xerxes hands Haman his ring, which was the seal of executive power recognized throughout the empire. You take the Jews through that tunnel of death. Because Mordecai wouldn't be a Bonhoeffer and he saved Xerxes from the lesser evil, he and his people now face the greater evil. The administrative machinery then swings into motion as the vast bureaucracy of the empire implements Haman's plan. Mailmen disperse to the corners of the empire on horseback to deliver messages in the form of letters to every city and town and village. According to verse 13, all Jews will die on December 13th. A little early, but still a New Year's massacre. Xerxes deputized all the citizens to kill any Jews they encountered on that day. The spoil which would be taken from the Jews should tempt the neighbors to kill them. Thus he would make the Jews pay for their own murder. Now the edict of death is sent out on the 13th day of the first month. 13th day of the first month, but it will be implemented the 13th day of the 12th month. Now, ironically, when the edict is sent out, the 13th day of the first month, it's the very eve of Passover. The joy of the holiday is turned to sorrow in Persia when the decree is delivered on Passover. God told these Jews 900 years earlier, I am the Lord your God and I will bring you out of the land of slavery. And now they're questioning if the Lord their God will bring them out of the tunnel of ethnic cleansing. The end of verse 15. The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. They have now casually decreed the annihilation of an entire people group. And where are they as the chaos descends upon the empire? They're having a few beers after a hard day's plotting. The Jews have 11 months to live. I mean, suppose that the lot had fallen on the second or third month instead of the 12th month. The, the swift horses and messengers would scarcely have been able to reach the extremity of the Persian empire in time. But we have a gap. Whenever God creates a gap, there's an opportunity. In three days, Nineveh will be destroyed. There's a gap. In 11 months, the Jews will be destroyed. There's a gap. God is sovereign over lots and letters. And he loves to show up in gaps. As Haman is calculating, scheming, and plotting, God is calculating, scheming, plotting. Pagan deities or blind chance do not govern all things. Those dice gave a day and a month, but it wasn't Satan's day or month. 
It was God's. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Haman was a guy who took life by the horns. Mordecai was a guy whom life took by the horns. Ultimately, God sits in heaven enthroned and laughs at all the perceived horn grabbing. Now, I've got four applications. Actually, I have three applications. That's my Christmas present to you. I'll cut it down. <laughs> three applications. Application number one. Mordecai and Haman are not the key characters in their family feud. On the surface, you can travel back to a defeated nation, an executed king, a disposed family, wounded pride, to discover Haman's reasons for hating the Jews. But beneath the surface, you'll discover that the reason for his hatred has nothing to do with family history. Haman's hatred is inspired by the Jews' real enemy, Satan himself, who has been trying for centuries to destroy God's covenant nation in order to ensure that Jesus would not be born. Haman, like Agag before him, is just the pawn in the hand of a desperate devil who will spend all of history trying to destroy the line from which Jesus will come. King Agag wasn't the first to attack the Jews and we know full well from our Bibles that his ancestor Haman won't be the last. This is the longest family feud in human history. This is not a family feud. It is the family feud. And it began in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. God is speaking to this hissing serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. See, Satan's seed, that's, that's Agag. That's Haman. That's Herod killing all the children two years and under. See, the names change, but the script doesn't. Satan writes it and hands it to his minions. God's seed. See, at first, that's Saul. That's Samuel. That's Esther and Mordecai. That's Joseph and Mary. Esther is merely a theater within which a conflict, an age-old conflict, continues to be expressed between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Between the reign of Christ and the reign of the Antichrist. The main characters in this feud aren't Haman and Mordecai. It's Satan and God. On the cross, Satan delivered a bruise to Jesus' heel. But on the cross, Jesus delivered a bruise to Satan's head. A fatal blow. Yesterday, my boys and I, we were watching a sport. And um, it turned into a competition, like all things with guys do. So we were picking the sides. Well, I picked this one. Well, I picked that one. And my son, Stafford, piped up and he says, I'm going to cheer for whoever wins. <laughs> and I said, son, that's a, that's a good idea. You should follow his advice. You should cheer for whoever wins. Who ends up winning this feud? Some of you are not Christians. You're not followers of Christ. You're not believers. You haven't banked your eternity on this risen Christ. And to you, it, it really looks like both sides lost. There's a lot of death, a lot of heartache, a lot of pain, but... But see, the winning side writes the history. 
That's actually why I love Herodotus. He was a Greek historian. They call him the father of history. Uh, the way history was typically told in that day is whichever nation won the war, they would hire their historian and he would write the story. It's not really history, it's, it's, it's PR. Well, Herodotus didn't do that, he just presented the facts and that's, that's why I like to read after him. But we know that Herodotus isn't the father of history. We know who the father of history is. Friend, we have the history before it happens. God writes it for us in Revelation. He wins. The family feud ends with Satan in hell and Jesus ruling and reigning. I'm on the winning side. You you know what makes the hiss run away? What makes the hiss fade off into the distance? A roar. The roar of a lion ending this battle once and for all. This week I studied the Hatfield and McCoy feud. And I couldn't help but to pick a side. When I started my research, I was definitely on one particular side. Then as I continued, I I switched to the other side. We have a deacon in our church who's in this service, and he's from West Virginia, and he's picked a side. We have another guy in our church who is connected to the McCoys, and he's picked a side. You need to pick a side. And I'm not talking about the West Virginia-Kentucky feud. I'm talking about the other one between God and Satan. And you say, Kyle, I'm, I'm like an innocent bystander. I'm not in this family feud. I'm just watching it unfold. No, you're in it. If you're not in Christ, you are with Satan. And you will have wrath to face. So friend, join this family. I say, Kyle, how, how do I get in? It's only one way. By repentance. By believing in this Christ. By banking your eternity in this empty tomb. That's application number one. Application number two. We condemn, we condemn all Holocaust and recognize their demonic source. Sadly, the evil of anti-Semitism still exists. And we would be foolish to think that Christians are immune from it. A good number of Jews believe that Christians hate them. Because they say Christians villainize them every Sunday in their sermons. Politically, Jews receive anti-Semitism from the left and the right. That they are teaching in schools that it is debated whether the Holocaust actually took place. They they are writing it out of history books. My grandchildren read history books during that time period. And at the bottom, there will be a little footnote that says, some people talk about an event called the Holocaust during this time period. Most historians say it never existed. This is happening right now in our history books. As as Hitler's troops marched against the Jews, they would sing these unthinkable lyrics. Sharpen the long knives on the pavement stone. Sink the knives into Jewish flesh and bone. Let the blood flow freely. Stephen Davey asked the question, Where does that kind of hatred and violence originate? It doesn't originate in the heart of Haman. It doesn't originate in the heart of Agag. It originates in the heart of the king of darkness. Satan is the ultimate Jew hater. 
He hates the thought of a Jewish Messiah. And he hates the thought of God keeping his covenant to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He hates the idea of redemption. So he battles against God's people and God himself. In Erwin Lutzer's courageous book, Hitler's Cross, he digs into historical records and reveals just how deeply Hitler was in, involved with the devil. According to Lutzer's research, Hitler's dance with the devil started in Hofsburg Library in Vienna. There was a spear on display in the library which was said to be the spear that pierced the side of Jesus Christ on the cross. Hitler first saw that spear when he was taking a tour in his early 20s. And on the tour, he overheard the guide say, This spear is shrouded in mystery. Whoever unlocks its secrets will rule the world. Those words changed Hitler's life. He stood before the spear that very day and vowed to follow Satan. He would come into that library and stare at the spear for hours, inviting its hidden powers to invade his soul. Walter Stein, a friend of Hitler in those days, said that Hitler would stand before the spear like a man in a trance or a man over whom some dreadful spell had been cast. He went on to say the very space around him seemed enlivened with some kind of ghostly light. He appeared transformed as if some mighty spirit now inhabited his very soul, creating within him and around him an evil transformation. What else could account for Hitler's mesmerizing sway over the masses? What else could account for world leaders trembling at the sight of him? He was transformed with one passion, a demonic passion. He was really just another Haman. When Hitler eventually marched victoriously into Vienna, he went into that library, took out the spear for himself and claimed, I am now holding the whole world in my hands. And he almost did too. But he ran into a church hill. We recognize Satan's fingerprints on that holocaust and on every holocaust. We are horrified when the government sends forth a decree to execute innocent people. And we are horrified when the government sends forth a decree to execute children in the womb. Do not condemn their holocaust and then ignore ours. Application number three. If you, like the Jews, are walking through a scary tunnel, you still have hope. At the end of chapter 3, the Jews are trembling. You ever been there? Let me read another story to you from Lutzer's book, Hitler's Cross, to illustrate the point. In 1937, a, a pastor by the name of Dr. Niemöller bravely preached these words to his congregation during the days of the, of, of the Third Reich. I want you to listen, and I quote, We have no more thought of using our own powers to escape authorities than the apostles of old. No more are we ready to keep silent at man's request when God commands us to speak. For it is and must remain the case that we must obey God rather than man. End quote. Within a few days, Niemöller was arrested and imprisoned. The indictments against him were 14 pages long. He was accused of speaking against the Reich with malicious and provocative criticism. 
He had violated the law and was charged with abuse of pulpit. When his trial date rolled around, the uniformed soldier escorted him to the courtroom. He made his way through the long tunnel. He, became, he began to be filled with dread and loneliness. He knew what the outcome would be. But what he didn't know was why no one had showed up to join him. Where were his family and friends? Where was his church who had stood with him? He hadn't heard from any of them. But while he was becoming distraught with these thoughts, something remarkably suddenly happened. The soldier who had not uttered a word began to speak. His voice was soft, however, that Niemöller couldn't understand the words at first, but as they reverberated over and over along the walls of the tunnel, Niemöller finally made them out. They were the words of Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. At once, his fear was gone. In the fire, his fear was gone. A new sense of hope and trust took its place. Niemöller would be condemned by the Third Reich and sent to the concentration camp for seven years. But he survived. He was liberated at the end of the war to tell a story. Like Niemöller, the Mordecai's generation of Israelites are about to walk through the darkest and most terrifying tunnel that they've ever walked through. But they too will discover the truth of Proverbs 18.10. When it seems like God has lost control, He hasn't. When it seems like God doesn't see you, He does. When it seems like you're alone in the tunnel, you're not. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.